Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So we're, we run through the questions and then if there's anything interesting, we might just pick up along the way. So you're happy. Yep. So obviously ignoring the camera, your eyeline is to me. Okay. okay. Do you think in hindsight maybe the help for nursing homes came a little too late? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of good look backs and personal reflections of what could have been done differently. Nursing homes are not built for managing a pandemic. From the news team at Virgin Media Ireland, this is Room 631, Ireland's COVID crisis. I'm reporter Zara King. This six-part podcast series contains the unheard tapes from the Virgin Media News documentary team. These episodes come from hours of footage taken during the making of our documentary, Ireland Under Lockdown. Throughout the series, we'll hear the thoughts of key decision makers who sat inside the walls of room 631 at the Department of Health and the voices of the people whose lives were changed by those decisions as a global crisis unfolded in their homes. It just seemed impossible to stop the trend of it happening and further spread into further nursing homes. I remember the night and the morning, it was morning time in terms of when he made his speech in the steps in, in the US. So on that night I was in the department with the minister and the tarnished at the time, uh, Simon Coveney. And we were there as Nefford were meeting in parallel. Uh, we were in a separate room and with senior officials as well and the secretary general. And we were, you know, in discussions and dialogue with the Taoiseach, obviously, uh, as he was in the States, uh, uh, to the senior officials at Taoiseach's. So that was, uh, that was quite an eerie time. It was very late in the night uh, when we were in dialogue. Uh, we all went home for a couple of hours rest and then back early the following morning as the Taoiseach was making the announcements and, and preparing the planning for it. But you, we kind of knew in that room at that time, uh, this is real, this is serious. Um, you know, and this is the responsibility I felt on my shoulders at that time. You know, I felt a lot of responsibility you're making. You're part of quite a big decision here that's going to impact a lot of people uh, and you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. So, you know, I did feel that. And maybe you didn't even realise the time our lives would change forever after those decisions in a lot of ways. Yeah, we, you know, we kind of had a lens of we need to do this now and hopefully we'll be out of this, you know, in a period of time. Um, probably didn't have the lens to the extent of which we now know are in it. Uh, so, you know, it was a kind of let's do this and let's get out the other side, side you know, reduce the impact on the hospital system uh, and we can, you know, we come out the other side better. Um, but nobody really knew how long that was going to take. Uh, we did know, uh, the certainly knew at that stage, the impact it can have on society, the impact it could obviously have on the economy, uh, but the impact it would have on people's lives. Um, but I suppose at that first phase, it was new to everybody and it was, you know, it was different and people wanted to protect themselves. People were fearful. Obviously, we moved into different phases later. 
many people's memories are milestones around the first case in Ireland or the lockdown. But from our perspective, it was back into January when we were watching what was happening, emerging from Wuhan. And I recall our first meeting of the National Crisis Management Team in the HSE. I convened, we made a call around on the Sunday, 26th of January, and we convened on the Monday, 27th. And certainly at that time, what we were looking at, when you think about it, was 56 cases of deaths in Wuhan. Uh, but the first two cases had just been identified in Paris. And, you know, that was, that was immediately alert to us. And they were transmissions, apparently, from travel to China. Uh, but, you know, even those two cases were alert to us. This is actually, you know, transmitting. This is Europe now, uh, even though at very low levels. So that was kind of first alert to us. And, uh, you know, then obviously, as it moved on and you move into, as it transmitted into Italy and across Europe, you know, people quite scared, um, and from my perspective, very apprehensive. You know, I was only seven months in the role, uh, now leading the HSA, heading into a pandemic, so quite a scary period. And people talk a lot about those images that we saw from Italy, you know, the, the mortuaries being built and sort of mass graves, and, and they were the real signs of it getting closer to home because they were in Europe. Yeah, it was Europe, we could relate to it. People had been to those countries, many people mightn't have been to China, but now they could relate to it very clearly. People had travelled. So it became very real very quickly in the scenes that we were seeing uh, of hospitals uh, being overwhelmed, uh, mortuaries being built. Uh, that's something that quite shocked and scared the nation. And also quite scared our workforce as well. It's something that you know might not always, might not always be understood. And they, uh, they did go in at the front line literally, but they too were scared, uh, and certainly from our perspective, uh, we were quite apprehensive about what was, we know our hospitals are under pressure on a good day. How do we cope with something like that? Uh, that was an immediate shock and alert to us about what we needed to do. And presumably then there's meetings and conversations happening. What's the kind of tone of those conversations? Is it about emergency planning, putting things in place? What were the types of, of conversations that were happening? Yeah, so literally from 27th of January was the first meeting of our crisis management team. And at that stage, we were looking at hospitals, our capacity, our ICU capacity, how do we increase it, uh, ventilators, how many ventilators did we have in stock? Uh, we had about 900, how much more? But at that stage, even then, it was very hard to scale what we might need to scale up to. You know, we were looking at PPE and saying there's going to be a higher demand on PPE. We spend about 15 million euros a year. Maybe we might need to spend 100 million if you were going to 100 million. Uh, and when you look at now, we spent over a billion on PPE. So the scale just increased and increased very rapidly in terms of what we were going to need to do. But certainly the first phase, it was around hospital capacity, ICU, and even at that stage, uh, mortuary, you know, that we would need to build a temporary mortuary. You know, and this was the immediate impacts and decisions we were making and mobilising for, you know, in January and into February. Uh, so there were quite big decisions and, and quite daunting decisions to be in the middle of. Because I remember being in government buildings when the, uh, Liz Canavan had, was doing her daily update and she'd mentioned the idea of temporary mortuary facilities being put in place and I remember being shocked by that. That was a tough decision to have to make and probably you know, on a human level, you know, that's a difficult a call to make. Yeah, and I think we had to manage it on a sensitive basis because you didn't want to completely scare the nation. Uh, but we equally had to prepare for it, so that was our job to prepare 
rather behind the scenes, so much behind the scenes about it because it had to be organised. We knew what we were seeing. We knew the, you know, the capacity of our system. Uh, and that was something that had to be done quite quickly uh, and um, behind the scenes, but not scaring or shocking the peop public too early. Um, but very real issues, very real issues, very early. And thankfully we never had to use them, which was a relief. Thankfully, yeah. And look, I'm challenged quite rightly about some things that we've spent money on. Did we get benefit for it? Did we get best use of it? Whether it was private hospitals, uh, whether it was City West. And, and that's quite okay. That's a public challenge. Um, but I do also remind, you know, but we did have to invest in the mortuary. We didn't use it. Uh, it was the right thing to do. Um, but thankfully we didn't have to do it. We didn't have to use it. And that's largely by the public actions. In terms of things like you mentioned there, uh, City West, PPE, private hospitals, these were all things that had to be put into place quite quickly. Can you talk us through some of the processes around those? Yeah, so if you look at what was happening across the world, just even take PPE uh, and say 15 million euros a year we would normally spend, now we've spent a billion euros this year. And it was a worldwide chase on for PPE because China had stopped manufacturing, obviously across the impact of many of their cities. Um, and it's one thing I'm quite proud of about Ireland punched well above its weight and that was the impact of a whole of government approach to this because we utilised the supports of the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, our ambassadors overseas in China, in Singapore, in South Korea, uh, Department of Business and Enterprise, IDA Ireland. We had contacts and I always say we punched well above our weight and we were securing PPE when other major uh, world forces and countries weren't. Uh, and we had what I described at the time as kind of global piracy, uh, modern day global piracy, where we had secured uh, quite big orders uh, and other countries would come in, jurisdictions would bid probably five times what we had bid uh, and that was the scale of what we are dealing with. And just to give you one example, you know, a mask, which everybody's familiar with now, uh, but a surgical mask uh, pre-COVID we would have bought for about 37 cents. Very quickly, that was 11 euros 40 on the market. And that's the scale of the price. So we had to not just secure, we equally had to secure volume then, not beyond the HSE for our GPs and ultimately into nursing homes. Uh, so that just gives a scale of price and volume that we were dealing with uh, on PPE and equally on ventilators, a worldwide chase for ventilators. And we needed them at speed uh, because you know we, we judged we would need them for our ICUs uh, and storage capacity. Uh, so there were big mobilisations that we had to do very early. But I do look back and be proud because there was a whole of government response, uh, all supporting the HSE at that time. And the support as well that we saw from the Defence Forces, for example, they got on board and we remember the flights coming in from the Aer Lingus flights landing in Dublin and seeing the images of the trucks going out. That's quite a stark image. Like it was, it was normal to us at the time, but even now when you think about it and look back, I mean, it was really something. Yeah, and I always remember the day I contacted the Chief of Staff of the Defence Forces and indeed the uh, Commissioner, Drew Harrison, we met in government buildings and we just, you know, again, I was quite overwhelmed by their support. They immediately, the Commissioner said, uh, you can have, uh, you can have um, our training centre uh, in Templemore. You can have it as an emergency hospital if that's what you need. I'm going to graduate all of the, um, the guards who are in training. And I thought, that's fantastic, immediately decision. Uh, Chief of Staff of Defence Forces, you tell me what you need, we'll mobilise. So the first call I did make to them was that we needed their support in setting up a contact tracing to centre uh, to mobilise. Uh, within 24 hours he said, OK, I have 80 of our cadets in training, they're on the way to you. And I always remember that morning in Dr Stevens uh, looking out the window 
uh, and seeing a fleet of army trucks arriving and the cadets marching into Dr. Stevens. Uh, and it was quite, quite emotional uh, to see the response so quickly, uh, quite powerful uh, to see, again, a state response around our health service. And at that time, in those early stages, sort of in March, we'll say, what were you hearing from nurses and doctors on the front line? How were they coping and how were they feeling? Yeah, again, quite apprehensive about it. Um, people getting used to donning and doffing PPE in a very new way, in a regular way, uh, than they would have had to do before. Uh, whole new sets of ways of infection prevention and control uh, that kind of make it a bit more inefficient, but had to be done all the time. Uh, so, but equally, they were very apprehensive about what might come at them, uh, how they would utilise their surge capacity. A decision was made at the time by NEFET, uh, which was to, a recommendation by NEFET and agreed by government, which was to cease non-urgent care. Uh, and equally, our clinicians would have been concerned about that, some of the impacts that may have on, on care. But at that point in time, it was the right decision at that point in time. Uh, we had to protect the capacity that we had. Uh, for a potential surge. So, yeah, quite a level of apprehension across the whole system. And was it difficult in terms of maintaining staffing levels? I know you've spoken about it over the last few months. There's been times where people will have been out on COVID leave or they're isolating for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the first cases that we would have had to dealt with in hospital, where we would have lost a lot of our staff very quickly, uh, you know, through an outbreak uh, in a ward or in an ICU, and you could lose a whole shift immediately. Uh, and we did have to work with our trade unions in terms of what might be a pragmatic way about getting health staff back to work on a much quicker basis, uh, but giving them the protections that they should have to our occupational uh, health teams as well. Uh, so that was kind of, again, quite, quite a new relationship with our trade unions, how they worked very closely with us uh, to support us in that process. So, yeah, kind of kind of whole new way of our staff, our teams working with us. Um, you know, I have to say, they, they did remain calm while anxious, you know, and they were probably calmer than many of us uh, just about dealing with this uh, and getting on with it. Uh, but many human stories about what they sacrificed when they walked out of hospital back to their families. And we heard a lot of those, I mean, there was people sort of separated from loved ones and things during that time. Yeah, I spoke to a lot of our staff and a lot of our teams. It's one thing I miss because I like being out and about in the services, but speaking to them, the sacrifice that they made that we don't always know about, we don't always hear about, uh, not seeing their family for sustained periods, periods of time, uh, not seeing some of maybe their elder relatives, uh, even at home for a longer period of time, their children. Uh, they were huge sacrifices behind the scenes. Uh, kind of made me quite proud. Uh, quite privileged uh, of managing a health force uh, of such commitment. And we saw the tributes when people would come out, put candles in the window and would clap for healthcare workers. Do you think that was good for morale at that time? I think it was good from a range of perspectives. I think it was good for the public because they really wanted to demonstrate their uh, support uh, for healthcare workers. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic for our staff. Uh, because even to this day, at that stage then, to this day now, our staff really value feedback. You know, you might think they get it all the times, and they do at the front line. Uh, but I often pass back, you know, a letter or correspondence or a card I get, and it gets a really good reaction. So a nationwide reaction like that, you know, it's phenomenal. And I always remember a couple of instances where people sent me some stuff on Twitter where in South Dublin, I think it was Bally Roan, where a community had come together and they cut their lawn and they cut the lawn in a kind of shared open space with the HSE kind of engraved and it cut into it. Uh, we love HSE and that for me was a very inspiring moment uh, for people to, you could see the connection 
between the people and the health service like, like I'd never seen before. We know that it was the nursing homes that were a place that really was hit worst by all of this. At what stage did you realise that the nursing homes was going to become such a significant part of the challenge? Mm. And I often look back at this as well because when we were all looking at the scenes emerging across Europe and the cases that were emerging, it was all about the hospitals and that's what we were seeing happening. Uh, and it was much, it was at a later stage where the impact on nursing homes across Europe and indeed in Ireland emerged. Uh, so from that perspective, when I think there's a couple of things when I look back on that. Uh, firstly, it was very hard to foresee the impact it had quite quickly on asymptomatic people in, in nursing homes and older care places. And an obvious learning, but an obvious thing when you look at it, um, nursing homes and congregated settings as they are constructed is not the best place for older people in a pandemic. Um, and that's something as a state I think we have to look at uh, for the future. But back then, high transmission levels, high impact very quickly uh, and mobilising around supporting private nursing homes and public nursing homes uh, very quickly uh, to see what we could do. And again, that was uh, built in steps between PPE, some further supports, uh, getting our public health uh, teams in to support them. Um, I found that quite a sad time uh, when I see the impact of it. Uh, and you know, I found it quite quite difficult to deal with the impact that that was having at that time. It was very upsetting, I think, for a lot of us to see a lot of these cases unfold in the nursing homes. Yeah, it was very upsetting because you know we've all relatives, we've all you know family who are in those settings or have been at some stage, uh, and I think it became very real uh, for the nation of the impact of it. And it was difficult because it just seemed impossible to stop the trend of it happening and further spread into further nursing homes and further deaths, unfortunately. Um, and that is the time that, you know, if there was one point in the church where I just felt, how do you get control of this? Uh, that was the point in time, very difficult time for us all, a uh, very difficult time for people who worked in those nursing homes, both pri private and public. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I found that a really difficult phase. Do you think in hindsight maybe the help for nursing homes came a little too late? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of good look backs and personal reflections of what could have been done differently. Um, I do mean it. I think, you know, nursing homes are not built uh, for managing a pandemic. That's, that's kind of one big learning. Second big learning is just the transmission levels. And our own GPs, I've spoke to them, who went into nursing homes and look, you know, assess people who are quite well. You know, no symptoms whatsoever, uh, and then in a very short space of time contracted it, and a very short space of time, uh, unfortunately died. Uh, so you know, it was a difficult one to protect uh, and get around and support very quickly. Uh, so in terms of the learnings from, or in terms of the was it speed, was it time? Um, you know, there is certainly we have to all say we would do it all very differently again, and we are doing it very differently again this time. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The impact it had, we've spoken to different people through this. Um, for example, on mental health was, was a really big one because there were people, I suppose, who had never experienced any issues with their mental health who all of a sudden were feeling things they'd never felt before. Uh, was that something that you were very conscious of and mindful of when you were making a lot of the decisions? Yes, very much so. I mean, it's something I'm personally quite close to. I would have supported a kind of a task force previously before I joined HSA, government task force around young mental health. And I, you know, I understand that and I know the impacts and I've seen some of the impacts of my own family and mental health. So it's something I'm very close to. Um, and decisions around restricted movements and even now, um, I think there will be consequences of this for a long period of time from a mental health perspective, we will have to deal with. And right now, today, we are seeing the impacts of people coming forward with anxiety levels, people coming forward with acute stress levels, and people coming forward with mental health issues, uh, both younger age populations, uh, all age uh, and older age people. And that's one thing that does break my heart, you know, where we, how we deal with this on a medium term and longer term basis, I think is going to be with us. Uh, and it's 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 just a kind of an atmosphere to our society how we like to mix how we like to engage and you break off all our natural chains of engagement how, what's natural to us uh, i think there are impacts and if there are impacts we will probably have to live with for quite a while and do you think the health services equipped in terms of investment in mental health services to to deal with the fallout from this pandemic going forward i think we're going to have to look at all our plans again uh, and it's it's too early to say post covid but going to have to look at it for the next phase and into the future. So there's been many studies on, you know, a strategy, a vision for change for mental health. I think everything needs to be reassessed now uh, because the norms we would have looked at all that in the past have changed and the impacts have changed in terms of people and some of the consequences we don't know about just yet uh, in terms of mental health impacts. So I think we need to reassess everything in terms of priorities over healthcare, priorities over investment uh, for the future. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that there's a very clear message that we're going to have to need to reassess priorities um, as we work through this and as we get out the other side of it. And another, I suppose, uh, long aspect of COVID is the idea of this long COVID that we're hearing about, which is a relatively new term, and we're still sort of trying to figure out what long COVID really means. Um, what's your understanding of long COVID and what, what are you seeing in terms of the trends there? Yeah, well, I speak a lot to our consultants and lead consultants who would be uh, dealing with this regularly. And one of the things they would be saying to me is our investment for the future where we talk about ICU beds and capacity, and that's needed, and we will do that, and it has to be done. They equally talk about how you deal with the longer-term respiratory impacts of COVID. Uh, that's just one aspect. We spoke about mental health, but respiratory as well. Uh, and the need to probably increase our resourcing around some of the longer-term impacts of COVID. Um, it's not always known just yet. People refer to the phrase of long COVID, uh, and there's different views of what that will mean. And again, some of it we don't know, but certainly what our consultants are saying to us is we want to have to resource in a new way 
are for treating people over medium term, long term impacts of COVID. In terms of the challenges then, um, as we began to reopen and normal health service started to resume because a lot of people talk about the difference between now and earlier in the year. Earlier in the year things were cancelled and hospitals were freeing up to just focus solely on COVID. Whereas uh, in this second surge, whatever we want to call it, uh, the healthcare workers, the frontliners are working on other stuff too, not just COVID. Like the hospitals are, a lot of them are at nearly full capacity. Yeah, well I think we're in a very different phase as you say now as we are working to restore all of our non-COVID services. We're very anxious. I mean, I've been very public about this from a HSE's perspective. Restrictions or stay at home or lockdowns, they have a very significant impact on the health service. Uh, so apart from society, apart from the economy, on our health service, they have a very significant impact. So we're seeing people, some people coming through for care now, uh, and they should have come through much earlier, um, probably out of fear to go to our hospitals. And what our consultants are saying to us is the longer people leave it, and the more complex the intervention is needed in terms of their care and the higher the risk and equally less better outcomes emerging from it. So that is a constant concern I have in the health service. As we see our hospitals right now, um, the numbers of COVID cases would be obviously lower than we had at the peak. Uh, so just over 300 today as we speak. Uh, but the impact of those numbers are very significant because one positive case can ultimately lead an award being shut down so it's a very significant impact. Uh, but we're uh, very anxious. Uh, our emergency departments are seeing much more reduced numbers than they were this time last year. Uh, so I'm quite anxious that we get people to come forward for the care where they need it. Uh, and that's still an important message for everybody. I heard we were speaking to um, a consultant about waiting times and waiting lists recently. And they were just saying that, you know, waiting lists really because of capacity and everything have almost sort of doubled in a sense that because logistically you can only have so many people in a waiting room coming in for different processes and procedures. Is that just an inevitability that we have to face now as we head into the future, into next year and the year after, that if you're on a waiting list you will be waiting for some time? Yeah, I think we've, our waiting list has significantly increased because of the impact of those few months where we just didn't have elective care happening. Um, and it'll be very difficult to catch up on all of that. So what we have to do now is prioritise those, obviously the most urgent care. Uh, so things like uh, cancer and rapid access clinics, um, ensuring that people come forward. They were always open, uh, but we did see reduced levels uh, of people coming forward uh, would be a priority. Obviously cardio services, oncology cancer, as I said, and others uh, where we have to prioritise. Uh, so that is one. Uh, so for the future, looking forward, our health services are now managing dual services, I would call it. So protecting people uh, against contracting COVID and equally having pathways that protect people who come forward with COVID. Uh, so it's a very dual system. And you're right, the likes of waiting rooms, you can't have the numbers of people before that we had in our waiting rooms. But we're still very anxious to say to the public, and it's still very important for us that they do come forward, and also our cancer screening services. I mean, recently we've seen just over 10% of people coming forward for the scheduled uh, called appointment for cancer for uh, cervical check. Uh, so that's really important for us that people, you know, feel confident and uh, comfortable to come to our services. Uh, we have infection prevention control measures, but it is more inefficient in a way our hospital system because we have to put those controls, social distancing, infection prevention control measures, and a dual pathway system. You know, thankfully, uh, government have funded us significantly extra funds uh, as we head into next year uh, to manage that uh, inefficiency that 
is built into the, all of those controls. Uh, looking back, was there anything this year that you would have done differently, or with, high, with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you'd have changed? Yeah, well, you know, I, I was on the record very early and very often by saying, you know, I guess I expected we would get 70% of our decisions right, um, and it'd probably be 30% of them we might get wrong or we'll have to learn from. Um, and that's a good ratio uh, for anybody. Uh, but there's always an expectation in public service you'll get 100% of your decisions right all of the time. Uh, but I wanted to be very clear, and I said this to ministers, governments, uh, Rockdus members, uh, party opposition leaders, uh, our own board, that we were going to have to make decisions. And we're going to have to quickly make decisions all the time. Michael Ryan talks about it in WHO, you've got to make quick decisions and make them regular. So, you know, I'm proud that we've made decisions quickly. Uh, the ones that I would do differently again, certainly our utilisation, how we would utilise private hospitals, uh, nursing homes in terms of responsiveness or how we work collectively around protection of nursing homes. Obvious uh, two big lessons that we will do differently and have done differently uh, for this phase. What was the, the toughest or the most difficult day you've had through all of this since it began? Yeah, at a personal level, a professional level in my job, um, what I have found really difficult was talking to uh, relatives, spouses, partners uh, who'd lost uh, healthcare staff. Uh, I found that really impactful, uh, just talking to them, uh, you know, as their relative had passed away. Um, from obviously just the tragedy of it alone, what they sacrificed for going into work, uh, the commitment they gave to the Irish health system, to the public. Um, their family not being able to grieve properly, uh, their colleagues, their friends. So at a personal level, I, I found that definitely the toughest thing I've had to do in my career. Uh, it just uh, it was really impactful for me. It, you know, and it still does, as I thankfully having to do less of it. Um, but any one of those calls, I've you know, they really set me back quite a lot. What's it like to be in charge of a health service in a global pandemic? Yeah, it's a great privilege. Um, I've said this to people quite a lot. Many people say it to myself, but particularly frontline workers, you know, it, it must be challenging, must be difficult. Um, but actually, it doesn't feel like that for me. It feels quite a privilege to be getting up in the morning, uh, to be part of a system that's so key for Ireland uh, right now, uh, to be right at the centre of it, uh, to influence in some of the decisions. Uh, but more importantly, uh, from the you know to be making an impact on people's lives to be trying to protect people's lives uh, and with the public support and with our, our own support we, we've done that you know so from a professional level that's that's what it feels like for me you know on a personal level it's been quite a quite a strain you know from since the 27th of January no more than anybody else let's say I've had you know maybe four days off uh, you know at this stage um, but you know, that's you, you just have to kind of get your energy uh, from different places, and I obviously get it from my family, uh, and you know that gives me a, a boost of energy. But on a personal level, uh, it's it's been quite quite a challenging time. You know, you get you get you get days where you're just purely exhausted, uh, but you get your energy down from seeing some things working. Yeah, I know your grandchild is living overseas. You've been very public about missing yeah. missing out on a lot of those yeah, milestones. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> Yeah, it is tough. I mean, my own wife has a chronic illness, so from our perspective, that was my, at a personal level, was my first concern to protect her uh, during this phase. So, you know, she would be at one of the high-risk uh, categories, and uh, that was her first one. 
and then obviously missing family as you say we were granddaughter born October of last year thankfully we got to see her twice in November and December in Austin Texas um, but we would have had many plans this year but FaceTime is is a saviour and you know I said it publicly a 15 minute FaceTime call gives me an energy for two weeks with our granddaughter so you know it's good it's a new way I think of people communicating it doesn't beat uh, especially your first year of a grandchild uh, but look we're, we're safe and we count our blessings every day. Do you think we're forever changed as people by this Paul? I hope not I think it's having an impact on society uh, no doubt um, you can we spoke about mental health and apprehension levels of communities but how we engage how we connect all that we value uh, as a society how we how we live our lives uh, we're very different than many other european countries uh, we we like people and we like to engage with our families and friends uh, and that feels kind of cut off and uh, so i don't expect we change i think it's in our it's in our dna in terms of what we value as a society uh, and but it is very different right now and it, it doesn't feel the same and why would it um, but I think we'll hold true to what we are uh, and you know Irish population over many hundreds of years have been through quite a lot of trauma um, and we've held what is good about our values uh, about how we support each other how we value each other and I think we'll hold true on that. What would you say to people I suppose maybe they're we're heading into Christmas now they're a little bit fed up with all of this it's been a tough year for them I really hope people can have a good Christmas. Uh, we all need it. Uh, we all deserve it. People deserve it. And I think the sacrifices the Irish public have made. So I, I really feel for people who've lost their job. I really feel for people for who are concerned about their mortgages. I really feel for businesses who are unsure whether they'll ever open again, and some of them probably won't. Uh, so I think as a nation, we owe it to them to have a good Christmas. Uh, and we have to do everything in our power to make that happen. Obviously it'll be different, um, but you know, we're, we're a good nation for celebration of Christmas. It brings out the best in us and our values, uh, and I hope we don't compromise that. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.